Testing me, test, test, me, test, test. Yeah, we're going to keep that in. Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week of this podcast is either an interview with a guest or multiple guests or a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship in relation to computer science education. In this week's episode, I am unpacking the paper titled Precarious Playbur, colon, Modders in the Digital Games Industry. This paper was written by Julian Kuklich, and it's available for free. I include a direct link to it in the show notes. This paper problematizes modding as a form of free labor. If you're not familiar with it, modding is the practice of modifying a game or a program to be able to make it do something that it could not originally do as designed. Done a couple of podcast episodes that talk about it, which I link to in the show notes, which you can find at jaredaleary.com or by clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on. While you're on my website, you'll notice that this podcast is powered by boot.pd, which is the nonprofit I work for. And you'll also notice a bunch of other free computer science, gaming, and drumming content on my website. I'm a nerd who creates content for a living and for fun. There's no abstract for this paper. However, paragraph five of the introduction provides a nice article summary. So I'm going to read that for you real quick. Quote, the following paper analyzes the relationship between the modding community and the games industry from a political economy perspective. Without disregarding the pleasures and rewards individual modders may derive from their work. Within this context, the questions of whether modders can be regarded in terms of a dispersed multitude and how the power that comes with the status can be realized more fully deserve special attention. At the same time, this paper seeks to gain insight into the changing relationship between work and play in the creative industries and the ideological ramifications of this change, end quote. So this paper is written in 2005, and it's really interesting because the author mentions that in 2004, it's most likely that the games industry will become more valuable from in terms of like how much money is made from the industry than the music industry. But as of today in 2022, it's actually more valuable than the movies and music industry combined. And I've also seen some other stats that says it's more valuable than the movies and sports entertainment industries combined, which is fascinating. As somebody who games a lot, kind of happy to see that. But one of the ways that the gaming industry has been able to make profit is off of the work of people who play their games, and in particular, people who modify their games. And so we're going to talk about that in this particular paper. So there's a link in the show notes at jaredoleary.com to a presentation where the author actually kind of talks about Playbur for a conference. And in that conversation, Julian mentions, quote, Playbur is not work, but it is also not not work, end quote. Playbur is this form of labor that you might partake in for leisure or during play. So by modifying a game to be able to make it do something new, and it's something that I have brought up in multiple other podcast episodes and brought up to somebody recently, and I was going to share a link to this podcast where I talk about this paper, and then I was like, wait, I haven't recorded an episode on this? I need to do that. And here we are today. Now, if you think back to video games way back in the day, what was released by the gaming company? like the developers, was what players could use. Now, what some developers realized fairly early on in the history of the gaming industry is that people who modify games, create mods, extend the shelf life of that game. And in a way that is not at risk to the developers in terms of amount of time and money put into making variations of the game. And this keeps the game fresh and makes it so that some people will continue to play the game many years after it has been released and with very little effort from the developers in terms of having to create new content because people will create it for them. So like when Skyrim came out, some people made modifications that would like change the characters in the game. So instead of a dragon flying around, it would be a fire breathing Thomas the Tank Engine. And videos like that would go viral on YouTube and other platforms and would make people want to buy the game to try out these like goofy mods. But in order to play these mods, you had to buy the original game, which gives money to the developers. And again, uh, these mods were not made by the developers. So all this content that was being created and shared was at no cost to the developers other than maybe hosting 
files if they were, had it built into the game. Otherwise, there are platforms and websites that did that for them. And by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, I'll include a link to that Thomas the Tank Engine mod that I was talking about because it's hilarious. And there's a bunch more that you can find of people modding video games in some fun ways. And to be clear, that link is in the show notes. Now, what's really interesting is that some entire games were actually originally created as a mod for a different game and then kind of branched off and became their own thing. So an example is Counter-Strike. It was originally a mod for the game Half-Life and then became its own standalone product that has made a lot of money and is actually still fairly popular to this day. Although other games that are similar, like Valorant, are kind of more popular. We're talking about a game that has been around for more than a decade. But what's interesting is that Half-Life is actually a mod of the game Quake 2. So Quake 2 had a mod, and it became Half-Life. Then Half-Life had a mod, and it became Counter-Strike. Both Half-Life and Counter-Strike sold a lot of copies of the game, and are kind of a standout breakout success for the modding community. As a way of being able to make money with mods that you make, you could turn it into a full-fledged game or even a company like Valve. However, quote, many modders are either uninterested or unable to translate the social capital gain through modding into gainful employment. The precarious status of modding as a form of unpaid labor is veiled by the perception of modding as a leisure activity or simply as an extension of play. This draws attention to the fact that in the entertainment industries, the relationship between work and play is changing, leading, as it were, to a hybrid form of playbur, end quote. That's from paragraph four of the introduction. Now, in the next section of this paper, the author talks about the history of modding. And so the author talks about how Castle Smurfenstein is often credited as like one of the first mods. And this is a mod of the game Castle Wolfenstein, where you go and hunt Nazis. And instead of hunting Nazis in Castle Smurfenstein, you hunt Smurfs, as in from the cartoon show with the blue little characters. And Castle Smurfenstein mod was released in 1983, so... The modding practices have been around for quite some time, but it wasn't really until the source code for Doom was released in 1997 where modding became more mainstream. And the Doom editor in particular, quote, was a watershed in the evolution of the participatory culture of mod making. Anyone with the interest could create a level of a complex game, the equivalent of writing a new chapter into a book, and then, via the internet, publishing that creation. The unplanned and unexpected proliferation of Doom mods turned out to be a stroke of luck for id software since the mods require the original software to run on players' computers. As James Wagner Al points out, not only did the tradition of communal self-policing create a bond between id and their best fans, it benefited the company commercially. To enjoy all the free fan-created content now coming available, you first had to pay your toll to id and Apogee. As a consequence, subsequent id products such as Quake and Quake 2 were shipped with powerful level editors that allowed players to make their own mods, end quote. So in paragraph one and two of the history of modding. And so the author in this section goes on to talk about some other examples that I've already mentioned, like how the mod or Quake 2 became Half-Life and then that mod became Counter-Strike, etc. And so in the next section titled The Economy of Modding, the author talks about how Valve, which is a video game company, was able to make some money off of these mods. However, the end user licensing agreements, the EULAs, now prevent people from being able to make money or royalties from the mods that they make. So even though entire companies were developed around this, those very same companies that originally started off of mods will prevent people from being able to make money off of mods for their own games, which may have originally been a mod. So while people can get access to the source code and modify things, they are creating content for that company without being able to monetize that and extend the shelf life of the game. Now, one of the interesting things is that this actually can help increase customer loyalty. So by making it so that fans of video games or 
entire series of video games could modify games in interesting ways. Customers are generally more engaged or more appreciative when they're able to engage with those mods because fans of the game are able to interact with it in ways that they wouldn't have been able to if the company hadn't released source code or enabled modding in easy ways. So like an example of an easy way to modify games. In the video game Left 4 Dead, if you go into the files, the folders, like on your computer, you can find the sound files and you can actually swap out those sound files for whatever you want as long as it's the same sample and bitrate and depth etc which is something that i did in a community college class that i designed and facilitated it was called like the media arts ensemble and so one of the things that we did was actually modding the video game left for dead and we did it by changing out like various sound effects re-recorded stuff or found other memes, like as an example, we replaced the gun sounds with Pee Wee Herman sounds. So when you'd shoot a gun, instead of going pew, it would be like, <laughs> etc. It made it hilarious to play through the game, which was supposed to be like scary and whatnot. But when you hear zombies making really goofy sound effects in your gun as Pee Wee Herman, it completely changed the style. And people who saw this and how easy it was to modify things wanted to then go and do similar mods called sound pack mods. And so they would end up buying the game as a result of this. So this helped the company and increased customer loyalty because like people like myself had fun engaging with this game and trying to think of new ways to be able to engage with it. This can also lead to innovation in terms of the games industry. So it almost acts like an R&D and a form of marketing for the game without having to actually spend any money on it. So content creators like myself, like I create content for games Elden Ring, for Fortnite, for Stardew Valley with my wife, etc. When I am releasing my videos on YouTube, of like the highlight reels or even doing full streams on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, wherever. All of those platforms benefit by me being on there, creating content for them. But the original games also benefit as a form of marketing for those games. I've had so many people, like when I'm doing Elden Ring live streams or if I'm sharing a shorts or something, like on TikTok or on YouTube, people ask, oh, what game is this? Because they too then want to go and play it after seeing me do something in a short video. So that is a form of marketing. But on terms of research and development, some mods completely change the style of the game and allow you to do brand new things that the developers hadn't originally conceived of. That's a form of R&D because developers can then look at that and go, oh, that's really popular. We should add that into our game. So for example, the original game for Fortnite, what's now called the Save the World mode, is a PvE experience, player versus environment. You can build bases, you can craft and upgrade different weapons, different traps, and you fight off cartoon-looking zombie hordes while being able to build and edit all sorts of like really big bases that you then defend. However, games like PUBG, DayZ, etc. had this mode called Battle Royale, which is based off of a movie. And in that movie, a bunch of people enter into an arena and only one person's allowed to leave alive. That idea of the Battle Royale was intriguing to Epic, the people who created Fortnite, and they went, huh, what if we did that, but we took all of the mechanics we've got for building and editing and things like that in our Save the World feature, and we just put it into a Battle Royale. Because they saw other games being successful with it, they decided to implement it into their game. Okay, so that was the company doing R&D. However, they have since created a mode that allows you as a user of the game to create your own content. This has led to new types of content, like something called a death run, where you try and run through like all these different traps without getting caught in them, or story modes, or more open world RPG experiences, etc. Epic is able to look at this and go, what are people creating and what is popular and resonating with our fan base? And while Epic doesn't charge for the game itself, at least for the Battle Royale experience, it's 100% free, they do sell 
sell in-game items that they've made billions off of. In addition, some companies will actually use this as like a form of recruiting. So as I've talked about in other episodes, some modders view this as a stepping stone to get into the game company by being able to demonstrate what one can do by modding the game. Then they can submit that as a portfolio and say, hey, you want me to create more content like this? Hire me. Okay, so this all sounds beneficial for the company, but let's talk about the next section, which is titled Modding as Playbird. So the author mentions that all of that I just mentioned is problematic because the gaming industry is commodifying other people's leisure, like the user's leisure. And the author notes that this type of playbur is similar to like the open source software development where people will create or modify programs or entire operating systems like Linux to be able to do something new. And this often comes without being able to make money, although some certainly do. And while the gaming industry will often say that file sharing and piracy is a problem in terms of losing revenue, although again, it is more than music and movie industries combined, what the gaming industry does not often talk about is the fact that they are still making money off of people who are creating mods for their game or user-generated content. So instead of making a mod for a game which changes the code or changes the sound or the textures, you might create like a outfit, like in the game Sims, or a house, and then you can put that in various websites that will allow you to share the content that you create, and then people could download that and then they can use it in their purchased version of the game Sims, all without having to have the developer actually create that content, users create it. Okay, so the next section titled Modding as Precarious Labor. So here's a quote from the first paragraph, quote, Arguably, the precariousness of modders' labor lies in the fact that it is simultaneously voluntarily given and unwaged, enjoyed and exploited, because this renders it unclassifiable in traditional terms of work and leisure. Modding and other similar forms of free labor do not fit the categories of wage labor, freelance or voluntary work, and neither do they fit the category of leisure, play, or art. While free art or playbur shares traits with all these occupational types, it can only be understood on its own terms. Modding and productive forms of wage labor are comparable in regard to the fact that the creators of the produced goods do not own their products. By the terms of the original game's EULA, mods usually remain the property of the game's manufacturer. And while some modders have received payments by game developers, they are usually barred from receiving royalties, end quote. And so that was from paragraph one and a little bit of paragraph two. Now, if you're like, okay, this is interesting, but what does this have to do with CS education? I'll kind of talk about that towards the end of this podcast. So stay tuned. The next section is titled The Modding Community as a Dispersed Multitude. In this particular section, the author talks about how, while the gaming industry has financial capital, modders have social capital within the modding community. So people who are able to create mods and the people who then create content around those mods get a lot of social capital in terms of views and subs, etc. But that can also nowadays lead to more financial capital. For example, one of the biggest Minecraft streamers and content creators is Dream. And Dream used a lot of mods that would change the game in various ways like, oh, we're gonna make it so that we try and beat the game and yet the gravity is randomly flipping. So sometimes you'll fall down and then all of a sudden you'll start falling up. And so Dream created a video about that. And that video shared on YouTube is able to create AdSense revenue, which then makes it so that the content creator and their team 
are able to make money. When the author wrote this way back in 2005, that wasn't really the case. It was more social capital rather than financial. So things have kind of like blurred the lines between the two. Now it might actually be a form of labor rather than labor. So this leads into the very last section, which is on the future of modding. And it was interesting to read that because it's been almost two decades now since this was written. And so things have definitely changed. Some for the better and some have kind of stayed the same. Let's talk about that. So at the end of these unpacking scholarship episodes, I like to share some lingering thoughts and questions. And now I'm going to tie this into computer science education in particular. I wanted to introduce the idea of playbur, what is it, what does it look like, etc. Now let's like get a little bit nerdy here. So the first question that I have is when might CS education also be a form of playbur? So for example, fairly recently, over the last year or so, there have been discussions about fees in the App Store. In particular, Apple has been criticized for having a high cut and preventing for developers from being able to lower that percentage or make sales outside of the App Store where Apple takes a cut, etc. So a question that I have is when might an app development course, like in a high school or even middle school, be a form of labor? And when might it be an entrepreneurial opportunity? Kind of blurs the line between the two, because while a student might be creating an app just for fun, they could potentially make money off of it. But if they do, app stores and their hosts like Apple, Google, etc., might end up making money off of that. So is that a form of labor? if you do an app development course. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't have an answer to that. But building off of that, at what point does modding become a problematic form of labor in your eyes? So I really enjoyed modding Minecraft. I did it to propose to my wife. I've also done some of the audio mods that I mentioned, the sound pack mods, etc. It's a lot of fun. All of those mods I made for myself. I did not share them with anyone else. And I did it for fun. I genuinely enjoyed it. And I got married as a result of one of them. Well, that wasn't the only reason, but you know what I mean. Okay, so what I've presented so far has been an idea of playbur and how companies make money off of people. So again, tying it back directly into the CS classroom, how might we discuss the ethics around modding and playbur or user-generated content or even just social media platforms in general in our CS classes. Could go under the impacts of computing, or it could be an entire class on ethics around computer science. Now, one of the interesting newer developments is that companies like Epic Games, who's a company that made Fortnite, is they have an ability for creators to make money. So there's a support a creator code. This code allows creators to receive roughly 5% of a cut of digital currency spent within Fortnite game store or other games on Epic store. All somebody has to do is like type in Jared O'Leary for their creator code. And then anything that they buy while that code is active will then go towards a content creator like myself. This makes it so people who make mods or user-generated content can actually make some money off of this. Granted, it's not a lot of money, generally speaking, but it's better than nothing. But again, a lot of content creators use multiple streams of income. So the supporter creator code from Epic is great, but a lot of content creators are also making money off of like AdSense on YouTube. Or if they're like a Twitch partner or affiliate, they can make money for every thousand people who watch their live stream that has an ad that plays on it, or from their subs, or from donations, etc. So a lot of modders are combining their modding abilities with content creation abilities to have a diverse set of income streams. And this is all stuff that we could talk about when it comes to computer science and ethics and whatnot. So perhaps not only should we teach computer science, like the skills and practices, concepts, etc., but one of the things we could also focus on more broadly 
broadly speaking, is just communication skills. So not just computer science for the sake of becoming a developer or a software engineer or whatever, but talking about how you might use computer science to become a content creator. So as an example, when I went through schooling, it mainly focused on preparing me to write scholarly publications. And while I have written over a dozen of those, this podcast is a completely different type of communication form that has a wider reach on any given week than any of those dozen publications combined. It's easier to listen to, it's easier to engage with and to respond to, there's not a paywall behind it, etc. So what I kind of wish would have happened in my grad school is the opportunity to create content outside of just scholarly publications alone. Same thing might be said for computer science. While it's great that you might be able to engage in computer science concepts to create an app or create a game or whatever, but also we could explore using computer science concepts, practices, skills, etc., to create entertainment in the form of like YouTube videos or something. Just an idea. The last question that I have is what are other examples of Playbird that might be discussed in computer science education classes? So I mentioned it in passing, but social media sites would not exist if people did not create and share content on those social media sites who then sell ads to users of that site who are creating the content for them. So that might be something that we could discuss in ethics of computer science, especially around, well, what are the ethics of encouraging engagement? Like, do we share the controversial posts or we share the posts that make people happy? What ads do we put on those? What are other ways of making money without having to polarize people or engaged in play-based forms of labor? For example, we have that support a creator code for Epic Games. What about social media platforms doing similar things? Hey, we notice you have a lot of users engaging with your content that you're creating for our platform. We are going to give you a cut of the ads that are played on the content that you create. That could be a really interesting discussion in your computer science classes that blurs discussions around business, entrepreneurship, etc. So I don't know about for you, but Playbird was one of those things where it just really opened my eyes and I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I had never thought of that. I just did this for fun. I wasn't thinking about how the fact that people are profiting off of my fun. And now that I know that, I still engage in it because I am enjoying it. And there are opportunities to make money off of it, whether it's like the YouTube content or streaming or whatever, but I'm doing that while being fully aware that somebody else is making significantly more money off of the content that I create for them. So it's an interesting thing to think about. I know this was kind of a different episode of the CSKA podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I like to switch things up in different ways. As there are now 159 episodes on my website, jaredleary.com. So if you like this episode and want to try out a different one, check out the interviews, check out another Unpacking Scholarship episode, or check out one of the April Fool's podcasts. But stay tuned next week for another episode. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.